Welcome to the Arise Podcasts with Danielle Castillejo and Maggie Hemphill, conversations around faith, race, justice, gender, and the church. Hey, Maggie, thank you so much for introducing us. Well, we are on the heels of a very tumultuous week. And so for a long time, I've been kicking it around. I've, I've been thinking about narcissism and the current sociopolitical climate. And I wanted to invite my dear friend and colleague, uh, a psychotherapist, a DV advocate, um, she's in private practice in Seattle. She's also an affiliate therapist and trainer with Northwest Family Life. And Yvette, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so honored that you're with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. I know Danielle and I have talked about this for a very long time, so we're finally doing it. Yeah, and I mean, Maggie and I just want to hear, like we want to get to um, talking about narcissism and abuse and the effects and those things, but we want to hear like how you're doing What's it been like during COVID for you to, to start your practice, graduate from school? Like, tell us a little bit like how, how all of that's played out and how it's going. Yeah, that's a whopper of a question right off the bat. I know. <laughs> Someone asked me last night how the past uh, nine months or pan, however many months, I don't know, nine years now, the pandemic, it feels like has been going on, what it's been like. And I think that kind of in our circles, we've been hearing a lot of the phrase grief and gratitude. And there's just so much of that. Uh, there's a ton of grief over um, the abrupt end to our grad school experience and not getting to have graduation and not getting to say goodbye to people that we have bled with over the past three years. Um, but a lot of gratitude uh, because there, there was a lot of need for therapists pretty quickly after the pandemic kind of started. And so um, kind of opening up into this work and doing this work has been has been beautiful and incredibly challenging. And sometimes I don't know, I just sit here and I go, well, what is it like to be a therapist when there's not a pandemic and there's not uh, like governmental meltdown and everything else that's going on. So um, it basically, I wrap all that up to say, when people say, how are you doing? This is the first time in my life. I'm kind of like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I think I know. And I have to kind of stop and think about it. Usually I'm pretty quick with an answer, but um, during this time, not so much. I think there's a lot of complexity in how we are doing in any given moment. Um, yeah. I was just thinking of that exact word complexity and that you have honored the complexity by not having a straightforward or simple answer. Um, and and one that includes, you know, the grief and gratitude that probably everyone feels during this season. Um, and trying to get a business started or, you know, get your practice started in the midst of this uh, just adds another layer, another layer and another layer. Um, so yeah, thanks for, for naming uh, the complexity of this season of this time. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I know um, so much of our current climate informs our work and what's going on with, because uh, I'm also a therapist, uh, what goes on with our clients and what's affecting them. And so wondered, um, we spoke a little bit about your locatedness and, and your um, your specialization, of, like who you work with in therapy. I wonder if you just speak to that, like where you come from, like therapeutically. Therapeutically, yeah. So I, um, the area that I like to focus on is I work mostly with women. I have some male clients too, but mostly women that are um, in DV relationships and with a particular focus on narcissistic abuse. My position is um, I am a survivor of what I would call narcissistic abuse. I have um, been in relationships with a lot of narcissistic types. 
I um, work with a lot of women that are in DV relationships. Um, I also work with some men as well. And so I'm passionate about that work. Um, it's one of the things that I'm really passionate about is that oftentimes when I just have conversations with people, when I meet them and they'll say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a therapist, a trauma and abuse therapist. They're like, Oh, what, what kind of client do you work with? And I say DV and, or domestic violence. And they're like, Oh, you know, and they just kind of back up because people initially associate DV with battery. So they, they're assuming broken bones, hospitals, police, and that is absolutely um, a very important category of domestic violence, but psychological abuse, narcissistic abuse also falls under that umbrella and can be as equally as damaging. And so I feel like, I mean, and it's so much more prevalent than I think people realize. Um, so I, I do feel passionate about bringing that to the forefront of the DV discussion with people um, so we can address it as a society. Yeah, I wonder as we're getting kind of started, if you wouldn't mind kind of explaining what is a narcissist and what narcissism looks like. I think casually we talk about it like, oh, they're a narcissist and we think they're selfish, but there's really more to it. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think narcissist is a term that's been thrown around a lot lately, I think because of um, our president in office and just a lot of just culturally we hear it more and more. It's becoming more prevalent and there's good reason for that because statistically, I think I think the numbers are around somewhere like one in 30 of the population over the age of 60 some years old are considered narcissists, but those that are like in their 20 somethings and younger, it's one in 10 that can show clinical signs of narcissistic personality disorder. And that has a lot to do with, I mean, <clears throat> our violence in our culture, our materialism in social media, right? The sense of look at me, look at me, look at me. Um, so there's a lot that feeds into that. Um, there's a way that narcissistic people will feel to you. And then there's also the clinical definition in the DSM. So just for the sake of, um, I think they're most notably identifiable by their lack of empathy for others. I think that's one of the top characteristics you're gonna see, um, an inflated sense of importance or superiority. And it kind of oozes out in the way that they talk, the way that they think. Um, I think we can have these caricatures of what a narcissist look like, but you, if you subtly listen, you'll, you'll hear that in different ways. Um, they have a deep need for attention and admiration and just a history of troubled relationships you'll see over and over again. The DSM actually, I think has eight or nine, uh, it's not, not, it's one of those two numbers, but anyway, they have, um, specific things that they would define. And I think number one is the grandiose sense of self-importance, um, then there's the preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, and love. They believe that they're special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other high status people or institutions. They have a need for excessive admiration, a sense of entitlement. Um, they're interpersonally exploitative. That's also very key in relating with a narcissist. Um, again, lack of empathy, empathy um, and envy for others or a belief that others are envious of them and a demonstration of arrogant uh, and haughty behaviors and attitudes. So that's what is looked at to or to actually diagnose somebody with NPD. There's, you'll hear people talk about vulnerable narcissists, deflated narcissists, as well as grandiose. And so I think the difference in that kind of has to do with how they were brought up in their family of origins. And a vulnerable or deflated narcissist tended to have, is a product of more neglectful parenting. Mm -hmm. And grandiose narcissists, they tend to be the product of being spoiled as children are told how special or entitled they are. Oh. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I'm just, uh, as you were talking, I was just thinking like, um, remembering back to my childhood and thinking through some experiences I had with leaders, either in churches or other places where it's like you're talking to them, but there's no sense that they're there or relating to your feelings and quickly how shameful that feels just even Mm -hmm. as children. And, And then it becomes this normalized pattern of interacting And so it, I think even just, you know, I'm 42 and just beginning to ferret out, you know, how did this affect me in different ways? And I think the idea that we have a president who is exhibits some of these traits very strongly on a grand scale has really, you know, almost like forced me to look at like, where, like, what's my narcissism? What are my narcissistic tendencies? Where have I been affected by this? And and so, I mean, those are kind of random thoughts to what you just said, but it's good to hear the definitions and kind of like some solid words put to it. Because like Maggie said, often I just run around thinking, well, they're selfish, but does that mean they're actually narcissistic? Right. You know? And and there's so much of uh, growing up, there's, there's also like this feeling of being gaslit. Mm-hmm. where if you call out someone that seems to have a strong lack of, lack of empathy or other things, then you're told, no, that's not it. That's not it. So, yeah. so those are kind of some of the things that came up as you were talking. Yeah. There's several things that you said there that I wanted to like, stop, stop. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Pick one. <laughs> well, just, I think you were saying like you had to stop and reflect on your own narcissism. And I think that's a, the, one of the first most common things people get caught up with when they hear the definition of what a narcissistic personality type is like they start to go, oh God, I'm the narcissist in the relationship. If you're in an intimate relationship, I can't tell you how common that is. And and the survivor victim always has to do a little bit of war with that um, because everybody has narcissism in them, everybody. And actually you need a little bit of it in order to try to achieve great things in life or to do anything. You have to have something that believes that you can, um, but people that didn't have good parenting when they were younger to have somebody inform them of their limitations and also celebrate how they were made, um, aren't able to kind of grow up in a healthy way with that. So there's healthy levels of narcissism that cause us to take risk important, necessary risks in life. And then there's kind of a narcissistic style of relating, which can be difficult, but I think you can also work with and see it in yourself. Um, and then there's something that becomes more pathological, which goes back to, um, kind of early, early, issues uh, with development. Yeah. I'm, I'm also wondering, you had kind of mentioned, like, even though we have this definition, this working definition, you know, from the DSM and also um, uh, the, the first definitions you started with, but you also said that also changes when you think about the way narcissism impact us. And then Danielle mentioned gaslighting. And I immediately, that for me is what I always think of when I think of the impact of of some being in a relationship with a narcissist. Can you talk about some of the other impacts of how it feels to be in a relationship with a narcissist? Yeah, Um, actually I wrote down a little list so I can tell you that specifically, it's a great question. Um, Because if you're in a relationship with them, you'll experience the lack of empathy. You're gonna experience manipulation. Um, uh, You're gonna experience projection. So often they will, when you try to confront a narcissist or talk about how they're impacting you, somehow things are going to get spun around and they're going to tell you that you're doing that to them. It happens all the time. So they will project on you exactly what they're doing to you. They'll accuse you of it, um, which is 
also a form of gaslighting in a way, I guess, to distract. Um, they're going to feel emotionally cold or distant. Like Danielle said, you kind of get sucked into their orbit. Um, and then when you're there, you're kind of like, they feel a little bit empty or distant or cold. There's, it feels hard to attach to their, to their personhood. Um, gaslighting, gaslighting, gaslighting. And it's like, again, we can make a caricature of what that looks like. And it can be very obvious where they can just say, I didn't do that, or I didn't say that, or that didn't happen, which is a more obvious thing. But there's also just the way of having conversations and talking about facts. And it's a, a subtle shift over to something else that re-narrates without the obvious, I didn't say that. Um, there's going to be just a general feeling of crazy making. You're like, you just feel crazy. You can't, it's hard to make heads or tails of conversations. And there's, it feels like there's a circular nature to something that doesn't ever quite get resolved. Um, so we, we label that crazy making. Another thing is confusion. Um, all my clients that are in DV relationships, when they start to talk about it and they just start to talk about the relationship, oftentimes they still haven't acknowledged that they're in one yet by this point, but they're saying things like, They'll tell you what's happening. They'll narrate it. And then they kind of just get lost. Really, it's so confusing. They'll say, they'll use the word confused over and over again, but that's really hallmark of being in, in, in abusive relationship for victims as well. Um, and they, narcissists just don't take responsibility. Um, so that's something else that you would experience in relationship with them. I mean, we read off the list and we go through and we're just jumping through hoops and it is so weighty. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, when you read off the list of what's coming at a person or coming at our society. Yeah. And just how, how even is there possibility to untangle from some of that? Or what's the process of untangling from some of that? Or even beginning to like, even to be able to name like, oh, I feel a lack of emptiness, a lack of empathy, or there's some emptiness here. You know, like, what's that process like for untangling from narcissistic abuse? Even as you said that, I felt, I felt the tension of that or just all the confusion and in, in the tangled, jumbled mess that it can be to be in a relationship with a narcissist or somebody with high narcissistic traits. And I I think an important key component of healing is dropping into the body and knowing what your body feels. Like you just said, how do you name what you feel? Um, in abuse, we often get stuck up in the head trying to make meaning and trying to sort through thoughts. And we can get derailed from, from what we're going after when we're trying to confront how a narcissist treats us. Mm -hmm. And we lose sight of how we feel. And so it's really important to get into a, like, what does it mean to have safety so you can feel? So that's the first goal. I think you have to establish safety yeah. so you can feel and start to name what it is that you feel and honor what your body's telling you. Yeah. I, I think about even getting to a space of safety is not easy when you're talking about domestic violence. And, and like you said, we think of physical safety being like, I'm not going to get hit. I'm not going to get punched or scratched or locked in my house, but often uh, there's so much of our safeties wrapped up. And even if someone isn't getting hit or punched, like there's, there's this psychological uh, tentacles, I think that get in and mm -hmm. have effects on people feeling safe, even when they're apart from the person um, that they're in relationship with that's harming them. And so, um, yeah, how, how does that work? Like, I don't even know exactly what I'm describing. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I think um, just to go back to the issue of safety, like you're saying, sometimes it is an issue of physical safety. Uh, sometimes there, if there's battery or, or even just emotional abuse, you need to have space where there's not a lot of background noise. So you can, so you can actually silence some of that stuff so that other things can rise that you feel in your gut. Your body is just not going to be able to drop its guard if it doesn't have safety. Some people need separation for a period of time in another home. Um, some people can do that effectively in the home with a narcissist. They can learn how to do that. It can be very complicated, but some people do do it and they have to because of financial limitations. They don't have other resources. They have children, whatever it is. Um, so there's that issue and that's where boundaries become really important in figuring out how to establish boundaries and maintain them. And it takes a lot. I mean, I think on average, it takes people that are trying to either get out of a DV relationship or try to, um, try to figure out what it means for them to heal it on average seven to nine times before women can actually leave. <clears throat> so they attempt it, they attempt it quite a bit. Um, so in with boundaries as well still along the lines of safety. It's not just safety with others, the person that's kind of the perpetrator, but it's safety, having safe people to support them, but also safety with themselves. Um, so what is it? We have to understand our own tendency to self-sabotage and the harsh narratives that we live with over and over again in order, um, that's kind of later, a little later on in the steps of safety, but I need to know that I am safe with myself to allow myself to feel really complex things um, and to name things. Um, that feel really difficult to name. Yeah, I was thinking about your definition of crazy making and thinking about how being in a relationship with a narcissist makes you not want to trust yourself. You know, part of the gaslighting is, is like, you're not sure what, what is real and what isn't real. And so I like that you mentioned safety is not just a physical thing, but being safe with yourself and being able to trust your own experiences and your own um I guess putting words to what you've what you've had. And then um this idea of having no noise. When you had said that, I, I was thinking about how it feels really hard to not have any noise right now, just like in this season of life, when we're only connecting virtually or mostly connecting virtually, there does seem to be a lot of noise, but making sure that you have space mentally providing a safe space where you're not being distracted and not being um, fed the same narrative that feels like a cycle that you can't get out of. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about how like how would it be possible for someone to heal while still in that relationship? And what I mean is, is like, I don't know, there might be a situation or a circumstance where you might not be able to have the kind of separation that you need for this kind of healing. And I, I recognize that that would just continue the, the problem, but what does, what does healing look like um, when you might not be able to get all of the boundaries that you'd like? Well, that's a complex question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's a tough one to answer because I, I think just going back to when we were kids and, you know, you learn really early on, you are what you eat or like, if you're going to eat candy all day long, I mean, some kids maybe thought they were going to turn into a candy bar, but basically that means you're going to rot your insides out. Yeah. So if you're, if you have like a cord of a toxic personality plugged into you, it's going to be really hard to let health kind of overtake that. And so sometimes if you, if you can't fully separate, like if you can't fully get away, but you have healthy boundaries, it's really important to balance it out with good, safe people. So you can flush in, you can plug in health and love and goodness from other people that can let you have your own reality and experience and help you get a sense of self and a sense of grounding. 
So I think that's really, really important. And I think the more that you have that, the more you're able to decide what you need to do about this other one. Like, and everybody's so different and every relationship is so different and their partners sometimes um, will go down a path of getting the counseling that they need. And it can be a long process of the, of the couples that are in the marriage trying to heal. Um, is that common with narcissistics or narcissistic personality disorder? No. Is it possible? I, I think it can be, um, but it's very, very rare. And I say that very cautiously because I think victims, um, that's part of, that's part of what they struggle with in the relationship to begin with is thinking that if that person can just get the help, they see their goodness. And so they stay in there a lot for that reason. Um, or they have a lot of empathy for their childhood wounds or trauma that contributed to their diagnosis. Um, and, or if they can just work harder on themselves, things can get better and survivors will stay for years in a relationship holding out for that. So I, I say that cautiously because I don't, oftentimes people do need to separate. They need to get away. And it's kind of like, uh, the focus needs to be, be on yourself and what does it mean for you to heal? And as you continue to get your sense of self and your agency and autonomy, that person will either see that desire to come alongside you and do the work they need to be with you, or you will naturally fall apart. And who you will be when that happens, you do not, you are not now. So it's, it can be scary to think, I don't know if I can handle that down the road, but down the road, you will be a completely different person. So you, you think, you don't think you can handle certain things, but you will be able to. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. I, and I think I just wanted to <clears throat> just like clarify, just like you can clarify for me, what we're, what I think is happening here is you're saying that narcissistic abuse is domestic violence. Is that, yes. for, is that what I'm hearing? Okay. And that oftentimes domestic violence, like what I, what I was learning from you is, is maybe more associated with like hitting or like battery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But this is on that, this is in that category of domestic violence. Absolutely. Okay. Cause I think as, uh, you know, being, I was raised in a really strict church, um, environment. And so when I look back at different people in my life that I think, wow, I think they held a lot of the traits you list of as part of um, narcissistic personality disorder, actually, like those mm -hmm. stronger traits. And now I, I have to think back wondering like, wow, they were married and with kids and, mm -hmm. and, and the church didn't have a, a category for that. Like didn't have a way to name that as domestic violence. And so I just, I just wanted to just yeah. kind of like come back and say that because I didn't have a category for that growing up. So even as you speak and you say it to me, I feel resistance, even though I know it's true. Like I believe you, but I have resistance to it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's the struggle for survivors as well. They all have resistance coming to label themselves as somebody who's lived through DV. Um, and in like support groups of women who are DV survivors, will talk about what was it like when you first realized when it first, like when it fully settled in that that's what you were living through. Every woman has a story around that. They didn't like it. They rejected it. Um, there was a lot of denial and resistance. And it's not that we tell them that you just show them like, here's a spectrum of abuse. This is what the spectrum of physical abuse looks like. Emotional abuse, psychological abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse. Um, and as they start to see, they, they'll, they'll start to put the dots together. And, um, it's, it's disturbing for, 
for survivors to have to own that, but it also helps them um, categorize and then know how to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that probably leads to a lot of confusion then, like of what you've been talking about, like, wait a minute, I was with all these people that said, or surrounded by communities um, that, or at least when I think back, like we, these were communities of people that no one was calling this out, you know? Well, I think you brought in an important part of the discussion when you said the church, like how, I mean, wow, is that a complex conversation when you intersect narcissism in the church? And I don't know if you read Chuck DeGroat's book on when narcissism comes to church and I think it was brilliant the way he laid it out and how he kind of intersected Enneagram types. And so you could identify, you know, identify what it looks like in each Enneagram type, but also just, I think his statistics, he's, I don't know, for years has worked with putting people in the mission field. And he was like psychologically evaluating them, if I recall, and he would say high numbers of narcissism in pastors, like, because the role, especially with church planters, (laughs) because he need kind of that grandiosity, the belief that they can do these impossible things. Um, so it's very prevalent. And I remember after listening to that book, I was thinking about all the churches I've been part of. And I'm like, I don't think I've ever been part of a church that hasn't had a narcissistic bent. Every church that I've ever belonged to believes that they hold like some sort of corner of knowledge on what it means to be in relationship with God, or we do this and the others don't. Um, I just, I, I was thinking, no, I don't think I've ever been part of it. I think it's part of the Christian culture in this, this era of time, which is really sad. And so therefore you're going to have a lot of people, a lot of narcissistic people in the church as well. Yeah. I guess as I'm, I'm, you know, listening and, and learning a ton. So thank you so much for sharing your, your wisdom and knowledge with us. I just am wondering like what, what the hope is for change, like for the survivor, uh, for the narcissist, if if they're if it's even possible for them to change, and and even in the, if we're gonna pull it all the way out to the the larger system of church, like is it possible for a church to recover from that? Like, tell us a little bit about what you see as the hope for change. Well, that's a big discussion too. <laughs> it feels like there should be ten different podcasts or each little story. <laughs> well, you're welcome to come back. We can make a series. So this can be our outline. Yeah. I mean, just, just pick one then like, you know, what, what's the hope of change for the survivor, you know, someone who is recovering from that relationship. Yeah. The hope of change. I think that they get to drop down in their body. There's something about getting your own sense of agency and voice. Um, and the more that they get to do that, which is really more of a feminist approach, which our society and culture hasn't allowed anyway, but I think, you know, things are shifting more where we start to understand that feminist approach of like, how do you honor what your body is telling you? And I think psychology is going more into somatic work and how do you honor what your body is telling you? So the hope for change lies within you. You were created to know goodness. And I think you're, you're created with an innate sense of what that means. And I think that that's first and foremost, what your DNA is made out of. And so how do you bless that and drop back down into your body and, and know that you can do that and you have permission to do that. Um, Yeah. And so people, they just need good support. Like how do we give people space to, to voice their truths and give them good support? Um, Also, how do we allow women to be angry? (laughs) In America, we don't do that really well. We say we do, but we really don't. We don't like angry women. We don't like it when women express anger. There's a way that they kind of get silenced in it. But what's your relationship like with anger as a woman? 
Um, do you feel like you've been allowed to express that? Because if you, a lot of the times we feel like we've had to repress that, but we need anger because anger helps us create boundaries and organize behind it. The more, and we need to be able to do that. What we do with our anger can be a whole nother issue. We may have to address if we are reactionary and we're causing issues with it, but we need that anger because we need those boundaries so we can organize behind it, get, get more of a sense of self and our grounding. Um, I think with survivors, another key point um, that we'll work with once we kind of establish safety um, is also to get in contact with what is your relationship with fear and guilt in your body? Um, abusers will exploit your fear and your guilt. They know how to do it really, really well. And you often don't know that you're being triggered because when you fear that fear and that guilt, you just kind of, you're like going into whatever self-protection mode you need to go in to mitigate further damage. And so when you get safe enough to get into an environment with a safe, attuned person that you can start to process, what's, what does fear feel like in your body? How, how are you wanting to engage it? What do you do? And how old do you feel when that happens? Because a lot of the times that stuff is rooted more in childhood stuff. And when we can heal kind of that inner child and do some of that inner child work, um, we can move forward and we can, we can hold better boundaries and we can we can identify in the moment when we're triggered and we can start to trust our intuition and our gut more. And so fear and guilt are two really important things to become well acquainted with how they operate in your body. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's so powerful. Like, thank you for sharing. I just, I feel so blessed to have you. I'm, I'm even thinking like, pull it out. It's like, how, what's the church's relationship to fear and guilt? Oh, and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how have the church lack of space for women to show emotion and be angry and create boundaries and systems around that led to more um, narcissistic behavior? And even if we don't go into the church, how have we allowed uh, people, um, narcissists to be actively in domestic violent relationships within our communities and for us to be blind to that. And so it does feel really connected. And, and it's like that small example helps me understand, you know, the larger picture. I think I was telling you, I kind of wrote some notes out about some of my thoughts around um, why I think it is, especially like why Christians have a hard time calling out abuse. Um, Cause we, this is, this is another thing you I'll often hear with my clients is they they're told by the abuser or they feel themselves that they are being judgmental. When they name somebody as abusive, they'll, they'll be told that. And they struggle with that because in our society to be told you're judgmental is like a terrible, it, like it's a negative connotation, right? But we actually need judgment so that we know how we're supposed to move forward in life. We have to look at at actions of others or, or whatever circumstance it is. And we have to make a judgment about what we want to do to move forward. So judgment is not the issue. When judgment becomes judgmentalism or, or when it becomes a problem is when that judgment serves to inflate our own sense of superiority. Wow. That's when judgment is a problem. And that's why a narcissist will project that back onto you and tell you that you're being so judgmental because they're probably doing that themselves. Um, and at the same time, because we are complex human beings who also have shadow sides. Sometimes when we finally get to a place where we can make judgments in our humanity, we will feel a little superior or we will feel good that we get to put somebody in, in a place that separates us. And, and we need to know that that's what it means to be human. And if it's an unconscious thing, 
we, we fear it and we back away from actually doing what we need to do to move forward, as opposed to understanding that this is what it means to be human is to have this complex emotion, but I know what, how to put that in its proper place and still choose to trust my judgment and move towards goodness with it. Um, so I think that's an issue in the church because we're told not, you know, judgment gets thrown around a lot in our Christian cultures is something that's very, very bad. Um, another issue around, I think with churches is what I call sin leveling. (laughs) So this happens a lot. I think my clients that have more religious upbringing struggle more with actually naming abuse in their marriages than my clients who don't. And because we sin level in a lot of our Christian churches, we tell, we say you're rotten from the core, you're rotten at the core. Everybody is a hundred, like a hundred percent sinful all the time. And therefore you're all equally responsible. And that's just not the case with abusive people. Um, And when you do that, you are harming the victim. You are adding, you are adding more abuse to her life. When you tell her that you actually, I think need to pick a side when abuse is on the table. You actually need to be very clear about who you're going to align with. It doesn't mean that you don't take into account the other person's humanity, but you need to, you need to stand on the side of the survivor with that. Yeah. And I, I feel that so strongly just in, you know, it's, it's an important call for us just even as we think about like, how do you, how do you wind down a conversation like this? Like, clearly we need to have you back for many more conversations. Um, And it, it, like, because these are important for us to hear, but we need to begin picking a side and, and we need to begin believing the, the person that is reporting the abuse. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's, on the individual level of the clients, you know, we all work with, and that's, that's in our community level when we're at church and we hear something that's on a, a, a national level at this point, when we hear uh, brothers and sisters in pain and we, we don't believe them. So I just, I feel like that you've just dropped so many truth bombs and nuggets of wisdom. And uh, <laughs> I'm just, I, you know, I hope, what I hope is we can continue this conversation. That's what I hope Uh, because it's a worthy conversation to have and very relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. There's, it's my favorite topic to talk about. So I'm pretty passionate about it. (laughs) There's a lot, there's so much to be said, right? Yeah. There is so many roads to go down. Yeah. It feels like we've really just scratched the surface because there's, it's so complex. It's so layered. Um, and because it's, you know, not always the same in every situation, there's, there's even nuance there too. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for this sort of broad overview and, and getting to name some of those things that we didn't maybe have words for or categories for, um, how it, how it feels, what, what, what it looks like. Um, and also just sort of clearing up for us, um, you know, domestic violence and how narcissism and, and surviving from that is, or narcissistic abuse, I should say, is, is in that category. Um, I think that's a, a piece that I think we needed to hear. You know, we all needed to, to understand that. Um, so yeah. thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Well, yeah. I mean, um, so we wrap up with three questions, Maggie, like uh, who or what's, um, what are you reading could be anything from nursery rhymes to the history of Africa. 
Um, <laughs> what are you, what are you listening to and who are, what's inspiring you? Okay. You know that I keep like 10 to 15 books on my coffee table. Yeah. That's not fair. We don't have yeah. time for me to list all those off. <laughs> I had somebody that recently gave me um, access to their Audible library because they they have like a lifetime membership. So I started to download. This is the first time in my life I've started to like download and listen to books and it's changing everything. I can get I can get through things a lot faster. <laughs> so what, it, what I'm currently reading through Audible is um, It Didn't Start With You which I think is Mark Wolin is his name, kind of along neuroscience, epigenetics, trauma, how it manifests. Fascinating book. Um, I don't know if that counts for what I'm listening to as well. Sure, sure. Yeah. Sure. yeah. I, mean, I, list, I started, I mean, I've really dove into music the past couple of years, which has been fun. Um, I think her name is Dominique Philomise, is somebody that I'm kind of obsessed with at the moment. She's a a Canadian musician. And she just had some, she just had a new song released yesterday. So yeah. she's awesome. Um, as far as inspiring me, Who my clients, that? my clients inspire me. They, sometimes the bold moves that they make that I just, I'm like, this is never going to happen or um, just, yeah, they work hard. They work hard and they come back and just take my breath away. Um, and how much they are investing in their own life and choosing to live. Mm. It, it is, it, it inspires me. And it um, just reminds me too, that I don't know, there's so much goodness out there in the world. Yeah. And what, what can happen when people feel supported and seen? It's pretty beautiful. Oh, we absolutely need that reminder that there's goodness in the world, yeah. <laughs> especially right now. Um, yeah, before we go, I'd love for you to tell us how people could connect with you or some resources of that they can, um, you know, access, like what's the best way to connect with you? Uh, probably through email. Um, I have a, a website. You can go to my website and there's a link for an email there. My website is whisperingtreetherapy.com. Uh, that'd be the best way to connect. I think a core text that is a great text on DV is why does he do that by Lundy Bancroft? a really important book for women that are in abusive relationships. I think it's, it's titled, uh, the subtitle is inside the minds of angry and controlling men. Um, so that's an excellent book. Another one is healing from hidden abuse by Shannon Thompson or Thomas. She, it's just a very straightforward book on uh, narcissistic abuse. She'll kind of education on the components of there. And then the stages of healing, very easy to read. Um, there's a book by Shahida uh, Arabi by, called Power. Excellent. There, it's a collection of essays around narcissistic abuse. Excellent book. When Narcissism Comes to Church, if you're in the Christian culture and you wanted to understand that, fantastic book as well. <laughs> if you're a therapist, Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman. Absolutely important book. I love it. Thank you so much. Um, and like Danielle said, we obviously need to have uh, you back on here and there's so much more to come. Uh, and so thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this conversation. Um, it's been really, it's been wisdom filled. I feel like is the best way you have such wisdom. So uh, grateful. I've enjoyed it. Thank you guys. Thank you.